Okay, so we just started a brand new sermon series looking at Second Samuel, the book of Second Samuel. Uh, it's in the Old Testament, that's the Jewish scriptures, the, the uh, first part of the Bible. And it is uh, a, a, a kind of epic story. Uh, and I've entitled it Game of Thrones. Because uh, that's uh, very much sums up what's going on here. This basically tells the story of uh, Israel's uh, second and greatest king, uh, King David, and his battles to uh, achieve the throne and then to retain it. And it's got more in common with the Lord of the Rings than it has with most of the stories that we tell ourselves. Right? It's that kind of world. There aren't orcs roaming around, although there were giants a while ago. Uh, but it's that type of story uh, about great warlords and generals who battle with each other. It can be an uncomfortable story to read and to process. Right? These great generals do not do things that we think are very nice. Um, it's not a very nice book, the Bible, actually. I said this last week and I'm repeating it now. It's not a very nice book. Uh, nice books have uh, lovely photoshopped people smiling on the front and only twee things happen with them. And uh, you uh, get a great sort of moral at the end of it and everybody goes away happy. They're nice things. The Bible isn't very nice because life isn't very nice. Uh, we live in probably the most cosseted and comfortable period in the most cosseted and comfortable country in the world in all of human history. And so we easily forget that. But for most of the people in the world, through most of human history, and indeed now, life is pretty not nice. And the Bible reflects that. It's not nice, but it is true. It isn't tame, but it is powerful. And as we're reading this story of King David, we are trying to think about three things that David shows us in his life. Last week, one of the things I said introducing this part of the series was that David is a bit different from every other king. So he is a historical king, just like King Henry VIII or Henry VII. In some ways, he behaves a lot like those kings, actually. Henry VII in particular uh, will be uh, in your mind as you read this story, I'm sure. But... He is more than simply a king. So we don't, in church, I'm not going to preach you the life of Henry VII or Richard II or Richard III or Rufus. No, there was a king called Rufus. There was a king called Rufus uh, of England called Rufus. I'm not going to preach to you about those people because they're interesting, but they're not theologically important. David is important because he shows us Jesus. In a sense, David's life shows us something about Jesus in two different ways. And if you don't believe that I'm right about this, read the Gospels, I encourage you to read them anyway, you'll notice that over and over again, Jesus is called the Son of David. Uh, Just to pick one occasion, he was walking outside Jerusalem on his way to enter in triumph, and the blind beggars were shouting out, uh, Jesus Christ, Son of David, have mercy on me. The David part is important. And David shows us Jesus in two ways. And we're going to pick this up. Every time we read one of these stories, I'm going to be picking this up. He shows us Jesus in two ways. He shows us something about who Jesus is. So by looking at David, we see a kind of slight shadow of who Jesus would become. He's like, if he's like diet Jesus. He's not the real thing. But he shows us a little bit of what the real thing would be like. He also shows us Jesus in another way, which is that David is constantly messing up. 
His life is one of great triumphs, but also great disasters. So he not only shows us who Jesus would be, something about who Jesus would be, he also shows us why we need Jesus. And that's the second part of David's life. David's life shows us both who Jesus would be and why we need him. So it's not a kind of hagiography, it's not a story of a saint, of somebody who never made a mistake. It's a story of somebody who shows us both sides of human character, both sides of what, who Jesus would be and why we need him. Now each week I'm going to try and bring that out. And this week we're looking at how David ascends to the throne. So I forgot to put this on a slide, but I, uh, I had rise to, the ki- rise, uh, rise to the Throne or something like that. Path to the Throne, I think it was. Uh, I've been playing with my graphics all week. And it's a story about two generals, actually. This is why I picked the, the story Game of Thrones. It's about a story about two generals. Abner, who was David's uncle, uh, sorry, Saul's uncle. So he's an older man and was a great general in Israel. And David, who's a younger general. And the two of them, basically, in the reading we're going to have in a minute, they set up rival kingdoms. Abner establishes a puppet king in the north, and David starts to reign in the south. And then uh, the uh, chapters 2 and 3 of Second Samuel describe how it is that the civil war, the results, is resolved. It's a story about the terrible cost of war. We're not going to read it all, but I do encourage you to read it. It's very poignant because it zooms in on some individual stories in the midst of this civil war, and you get a sense of how terribly costly civil war is. Do you know that in America, no war has cost the lives of more American soldiers than the American Civil War? Despite them having fought in two world wars afterwards, the Civil War was so bloody and costly that it's cost more American life than any other war that followed it. It's a story about two powerful warlords. If we were on TV, it would be the epic kind of mid-season conclusion. These two powerful generals fighting it out. More fundamentally, however, it's a story about the importance of following what God wants and the terrible consequences that come when we refuse to do so. And I want you to be looking for that as we read through this. Spot how David and Abner approach God differently. And just think about the consequences, particularly of Abner's choices for the rest of his family, for the rest of his people, and for his own life. It can be difficult to distill a lunchtime summary from stories that range so widely. Nevertheless, here is today's. Follow Jesus by finding out what God wants and then doing it. You will fall and fail, and even when you do, remember that he will be able to restore you. Follow Jesus By finding out what God wants and then doing it. And when you fail, remember that he can restore you. Follow Jesus by finding out what God wants and then doing it. And when you fall, know that he can restore you. So I'm going to read from 2 Samuel 2 and verses 1 to 9 and 3 and 1 to 20. And I'm going to get Heather to come and read from John 6 and uh, Joe from Luke 22. 
You might be wondering why it is we have two New Testament readings. I want to begin to show you how the lessons we learn from David's life are reflected in the life of Jesus and made clearer in the life of Jesus. So I'm going to read from 2 Samuel. I'm going to put it on the screen, but if you have a Bible, I would encourage you to get it out and to read it. Uh, It's on page 305, if you're using one of the Bibles from the church. Have a sip of coffee. In the course of time, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up to one of the towns of Judah, he asked. The Lord said, Go up. David asked, Where shall I go? To Hebron, the Lord answered. So David went up there with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David also took the men who were with him, each with his family, and they settled in Hebron and its towns. Then the men of Judah came to Hebron and they anointed David king over the tribe of Judah. When David was told that it was men from Jabesh Gilead who had buried Saul, he sent messengers to them, saying to them, The Lord bless you for showing this kindness to Saul, your master, by burying him. May the Lord now show you kindness and faithfulness, and I too will show you the same favour, because you've done this. Now then, be strong and brave, for Saul, your master, is dead, and the people of Judah have anointed me king over them. Meanwhile, Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of Saul's army, had taken Ishbosheth, son of Saul, and brought him to Mahanaim. Then he made him king over Gilead, Ashuri, and Jezreel, and also over Ephraim, Benjamin, and all Israel. Oh. Now I'm going to skip forward to chapter 3. There's a really interesting story that's worth reading about a sort of tragic tournament gone wrong uh, at the end of chapter 2, but I'm going to skip that and read from chapter 3 where we resume the story of David and Abner. The war between the house of Saul and the house of David lasted a long time. David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. Sons were born to David in Hebron. The firstborn was Amnon, the son of Ahinoam of Jezreel. His second, Kiliab, the son of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. The third, Absalom, the son of Makkah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. The fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggith. The fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abital. And the sixth, Ithriam, the son of David's wife, Eglah. These were born to David in Hebron. I did tell you it was more like Lord of the Rings than anything we are today. During the war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner had been strengthening his own position in the house of Saul. Now Saul had a concubine named Rizba, daughter of Aya. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why did you sleep with my uh, father's concubine? Abner was very angry because of what Ishbosheth said. So he said, Am I a dog's head on Judah's side? This very day I'm loyal to the house of your father, Saul, and to his family and friends. I haven't handed you over to David, yet now you accuse me of an offence concerning this woman. May God deal with Abner. Be it ever so severely, if I do not do for David what the Lord has promised him on oath, and transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul, and establish David's throne over Israel and Judah, from Dan to Beersheba, 
Ishbosheth did not dare say another word to Abner because he was afraid of him. Then Abner sent messengers on, beh- on his behalf to David to say, Whose land is it? Make an agreement with me and I will help you bring all Israel over to you. Good, said David. I will make an agreement with you, but I demand one thing of you. Do not come into my presence unless you bring Michal, daughter of Saul, when you come to see me. Uh, for those of you who didn't follow the first part of this story, uh, she was married to David originally and then taken away from him by Saul. It's not a great time to be a woman, I'm not going to lie to you. Uh, then David sent messengers uh, to Ishbosheth, son of Saul, demanding, Give me my wife, Michal, whom I betrothed myself for the price of a hundred Philistine foreskins. Or a Philistine. It's not a great time to be a Philistine either. <laughs> So Ishbosheth gave orders and had her taken away from her husband Paltiel, the son of Laish. Her husband, however, went behind her, weeping behind her all the way to Bahurim. Then Abner said to him, go back home, and he went back. Abner conferred with the elders of Israel and said, for some time you've wanted to make David your king, now do it. For the Lord promised David, by my servant David I will rescue my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner also spoke to the Benjaminites in person. He went down to Hebron to tell David everything that Israel and the whole tribe of Benjamin wanted to do. When Abner, who had 20 men with him, came to David at Hebron, David prepared a feast for him and, let, and his men. Then Abner said to David, Let me go at once and assemble all Israel for my lord the king, so that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may rule over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. And what we don't have time to read is that Abner doesn't ever make it home. He's murdered on the way uh, by two men that he had wronged in the middle of the war. And so he never did get to go home in peace. Well, I'm going to get Heather to come and read to us from John chapter 6 and verse 35. Again, if you want to follow this, it's a very short reading. It's one paragraph. Uh, It's on page 1070. 35 to 40. Yeah, or 71. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Thanks, Heather. And Joe is going to read to us from Luke 22, verses 39 to 40. Again, if you wanted to find it in the Bible, don't worry too much, but it's about ten pages further back. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fail, fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. 
an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And beginning in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Thanks, Joe. There are times when it is vitally important that we know what we're supposed to do and then that we do it. I was thinking about how to illustrate this and I came up with probably my favourite, one of my favourite scenes from any sitcom ever. Shaggy and happy are we then, sir? Written all our last goodbyes. Oh, no need for that, Perkins. I've just dashed off a couple of notes, one asking for a sponge bag and the other sending for my lawyer. Oh, your lawyer, yes, sir. Now, don't you think that might be a bit of a waste of money, sir? <laughs> Not when he's the finest man in English legal history. Ever heard of Bob Massingburn? Oh, yes, indeed. Uh, I'm almost kept a gentleman. Right. I remember Massingburn's most famous case. The case of the bloody knife. A man was found next to a murdered body. He had the knife in his hand. Thirteen witnesses had seen him stab the victim. <laughs> when the police arrived, he said, I'm glad I killed <laughs> Massingburn not only got him off, he got him knighted in the New Year's Honours List. <laughs> of the victim had to pay to have the blood washed out of his jacket. <laughs> ah, Baldrick, anything from Massingbird yet? Yes, sir, just arrived, sir. What is it? A sponge bag, sir. A sponge bag? Yes, sir. Baldrick, I gave you two notes. You sent the note asking for a sponge bag to the finest mind in English legal history. did, sir. And you sent the note requesting legal representation to... I love that. I love the idea of when I was a lawyer going to greet one of my clients with a bing and a bong and a buzz, buzz, buzz. Not something to inspire confidence in your ability. You see, knowing what we are supposed to do and doing it sounds incredibly easy, but as Baldrick illustrates quite graphically, at times nothing can be harder. At the start of this story, we find David approaching the peak of his powers. In the next four or five chapters, it's kind of, if you you like, peak David before everything starts to go wrong. He reveals in this story something of why it is that he's able to uh, become such a great king. You know, a king that's so good that every other king after him is compared to him. And that when Jesus comes and people are trying to find the words to express how happy they are, they say, here is the true son of David. And David shows something of why it is he uh, reaches that position. Something of why he shows us Jesus. See, David has refused every opportunity he has to seize the throne from Saul. Uh, He refused, if you remember last week, we were looking at how he refused to even take the crown when it was offered to him on a silver plate by somebody who had murdered Saul. All he had to do was wink at murder and he would have become king. There was another time in 1 Samuel, you can read that story for yourselves, when he actually had Saul at his mercy in a cave asleep at his feet and he could have murdered him there and then and become king. And yet David refused to do so. He's refused all of these opportunities to take the easy way out. And now, as he plans his next steps, he goes to see the priest. 
Now that's a curious thing to do, isn't it? The greatest general in Israel's history, who actually makes the point later in the story that his first wife, the dowry for his worst wife, was a hundred foreskins of his enemies, doesn't take a military council, doesn't consult with his special advisors, his, poli- his politicians and his uh, wise elders. He goes to ask God what to do next. I guess it would be the equivalent now of Theresa May cancelling cabinet and going to see the Archbishop of Canterbury to work out what to do about Brexit. And to be honest, that might be a good idea. It's striking that David is a man who recognises that although he has every right to be king, he's accountable to God. What God wants matters more to him than any, uh, anything else. He's humble and self-aware enough to know that he is not God. And that he will one day have to give an account of how he has acted to God. When you know that, it changes your priorities. And so he finds out what God wants, and he does, he does it. Uh, he goes to see, we're not told how this happens, we're, I'm assuming it's through the priest. But he goes and finds out through a series of, uh, of processes that God, uh, God's desire is for him to go up to Hebron, which is a, a city uh, in between Judah and Benjamin, two tribes of Israel. And he goes and he does it. What's the point of bringing that out? Well, David is showing us something about Jesus. This was why I asked Joe and Heather to read uh, those readings from the New Testament, not simply so that my voice would be broken up with the voice of those more elegant than I. But because we see something of what Jesus is, something of what Jesus is about in what David does. See, Jesus says when he's challenged, actually, I haven't come to do anything that I want to do. If I can put it this way, I'm guessing that there are times in Jesus' life where he's thinking, why didn't I just stay in the carpenter's shop? I mean, I can make a mean stool. He says to those who challenge him, I actually haven't come to do what I want. It's not what I want that matters, it's what God wants. It's what my Father in Heaven wants. I don't say anything except what He wants me to say. I don't do anything except what He wants me to do. Jesus actually proved that ultimately in the reading that Joe read us. That on the night when he was betrayed, he was on his knees in the garden praying and saying to God, you know that I don't want to do this. And why would you? Why would you want to be crucified? But nevertheless, it's not what I want that matters, it's what you want. David is a shadow of that which we see in Jesus. Just think about that for a moment. In everything Jesus did, he showed who God was. Because he only did what God wanted. In everything he showed God's love, his passion for justice, his compassion for the poor, his purity and his fire. Jesus never spoke a word out of turn, never missed an opportunity to help someone, never pulled someone down to pull himself up, never gossiped or grumbled. In everything I do the will of my Father who is in heaven. He was not weak. He could blaze with anger at injustice. He stood up to the proud and unrepentant. But he was gentle and he was kind. 
In everything I've come to do the will of my Father who's in heaven. Jesus was all of these things because that is and that is who God is. And he did what his father wanted, even when it hurt him. So David is a lesson here. He's a lesson and an example of someone for whom what God wants is more important than anything else. Again, if you were advising him as a military person what to do, you would have said, take the crown in the previous chapter, kill Saul in the cave, go to war before Abner can become strong. But David's not interested in what I think. He's interested in what God thinks. Actually, interestingly for me to see, the consequence of David's obedience is that he becomes king over a part of Israel without ever having to uh, fight a single battle. See, that's interesting, isn't it? Every other course of action, all of the wise uh, counsel he received in previous chapters would have led to him having to fight for the crown at one point or another. Here, he becomes king over Judah without, without, in a sense, throwing a single stone. He actually wins allies as he does it. Interestingly, God instructs him to go up to Hebron, and if you read up on the commentaries, I don't know if this is right or not, but I'm trusting those who are brighter than I, that they tell me that Hebron was actually a prominent city and a really good rallying point between Judah and Benjamin. He went to what was turned out to be strategically the right place. Why do I bring that out? Well, I just want to say, if you're somebody who's trying to take a big decision, the best way you can take a good decision is to trust what God has said about it. I remember when I was a lawyer, breakthroughs in cases came when I prayed about them. Now, obviously, I prepared as well. I studied, I read my papers, I did my work, I prepared my cross-examination. But there were times when I was so stuck with the law, I just could not work out what to do. And I would pray about it, and the answer would come. And what I realised is that God is actually a better lawyer than I am. You know, he's a better pastor than I am. He's a better teacher or administrator or a civil servant than you are. He's a better computer programmer than you are. Very often the counsel God gives us turns out to be actually the right thing to do all along, even when we couldn't see it. You know, there is a humility in yielding to God and trusting him, yet he's invariably seen to be wise and right in the long run. Uh, I can give you an example of this from... Uh, the life of my parents, actually. Uh, and uh, they were buying houses. This was the peak of the uh, late 80s, early 90s housing boom. And they sold a house in Streatham in London, where house prices had rocketed, even as they do now. And were moving down to Plymouth. And everybody, without fail, said to them, you should keep on buying a bigger house. You need to stretch yourselves, you need to get a bigger mortgage, all the way through. Now, I'm not commenting on what's right for you to do with your house. I'm just giving you an example of something that happened. And so they duly went down, they found this big house with a bigger mortgage, they kept stretching themselves, and they put an offer in. And my dad, when I asked him about it later, said, you know what, I just couldn't sleep. He wasn't, I mean, he's not an economist, he's an engineer. But, see, it's not that he had some insight into the housing market. He said, I just couldn't sleep. Every time I prayed, I just couldn't sleep. I just knew that the offer was wrong. So we took the offer off the table, and we went and found this smaller house, and actually reduced our, our equity. Our mortgage, rather. And he said, everybody told me I was, I was mad. Three months later, the housing bubble burst, and all of our friends had said that we should keep stretching ourselves, found themselves in negative equity. Now, I'm not offering that as a, you know, a be like my mum and dad 
idea, and I'm not making a moral comment on housing. What I am saying is that you can make decisions that people think are balmy because you believe that's what God wants, and more often than not, you'll find that God turned out to be right. Now, if you want a great example of this, then we've got a book on the bookshelves. It might be at the back. I'm not sure. Uh, if not, it'll be uh, in the study, and I'll get it for you. Uh, from the, called The Cross and the Switchblade. It's a story about David Wilkerson and his work with gangs in New York. At the beginning of the story, he says, he can, again, he couldn't sleep. He just was gripped by this story of two kids who were on trial in New York for uh, drug-related gang offences. And New York in those days was uh, riven with gang violence. And it... I mean, the stories in the book are harrowing. It's not a nice book, but it is a powerful book. He was gripped by these, uh, the story of these two kids who were on trial. And he said, I, just, I know that I've got to go to them and share the gospel with them. I know that I've got to go and share the gospel with them. I can't sleep. So he got, he got out of his, you know, his country church, drove down to New York, didn't know where he was going, ended up at the courthouse, walked into the courthouse with his Bible in his hand, saying, I've got to share the gospel with these two people. Gets arrested himself, doesn't get to see them, thrown in jail, picture in the paper, I'm in total humiliation. Like, literally, as bad as it could have gone, it went. Right? Slinks back off to his country church. And uh, he says, he says in the book, it's very funny, he says in the book, that, you know, everyone was very nice and didn't say anything about it. <laughs> yeah, even though they're all sitting in the newspaper. He says his father-in-law saw him. He said his father-in-law said to him an interesting thing. He said, don't be too quick to say that you were wrong. Well, that's interesting counsel, isn't it? If you read the story, I don't want to spoil what happens to you. This is all in the first third of the book, so I figure it's fair play. When he goes back to work with drug addicts, he gets admitted to the gangs because they'd all seen his picture in the newspaper. He was actually the preacher who got sent to jail. So they were like, oh, you've been in jail. You can come and talk to us. They won't listen to anybody else. But if you've done time, we'll listen to you. I haven't come to do my own will, but the will of my Father in heaven. That's a sense, actually, as I'm talking. There are some of us here who are making big decisions. And I want to suggest to you, pray about it and do what you feel is right. And I think for someone here, it is going to be really hard and you're going to look like a fool. And I want to reassure you that you, there are worse things than looking like a fool on God's advice. Because in the end, God's fools tend to look wise. And I want to encourage you, if that's you, take the decision you sense is the right one and trust that God will work it out for good. So David's willingness to find out what God wants stands in contrast to Abner. Abner is the other great general in this story. He's the other warlord, the other one vying for the throne. Now Abner's strategy is a bit different from David's. You see, Abner knows that God has promised David the throne. He says it two or three times. God has promised David the throne. God has promised David the throne. God has promised David the throne. He knows that's what should happen. But it wouldn't suit Abner. Why would you want your rival to become king? So Abner has a different strategy. Abner plots. And he gets himself a puppet. And installs him as king instead. That's Ishbosheth. I did promise I wasn't giving you one with difficult names. I took the difficult names. Ishbosheth is one of Saul's sons, and he's a total weed. 
he, uh, he's, basically, he's basically installed by Abner to become king in Benjamin. So that Abner can really run the kingdom. Right? You get that sense in the second half of the reading? Abner's the one who's he's sleeping with Saul's wives. He's doing whatever he likes. And when Ishbosheth stands up to him even once, Abner says, right, well, you're out, mate. He installs a puppet king instead. See, Abner knows what God wants. And he chooses to do the opposite. Abner knows the kingdom is David's. And he chooses to defy God. In order to secure his own position and power. You know, that's what sin is. We talk a lot about sin. Sin is not a word that's well understood in our culture. It comes up fairly regularly in the Bible. A good working definition of sin is doing what God does not want you to do. It's particularly serious when you know what God wants you to do and you choose to do the opposite anyway. Abner chooses to ignore God's will and his way in order to make his own rules and achieve his own power. The consequences of Abner's choice are terrible. I mean, just terrible. He plunges the kingdom into civil war. Abner's the one who chooses to, to, to initiate a war. Actually, if you read the bit we, we skipped, it's a story all about a tournament that takes place that triggers the war, and it happens because Abner is out with his men, aggressively attacking the borders of Judah. Many people die as a result of Abner's choice. Actually, including Abner himself. I said Abner never makes it home after seeing David because of the choices he made during the war. He kills someone's brother and they then come and take revenge on him. You see, God's plans aren't ultimately thwarted. My friends, you can't do anything to stop what God wants to happen. God will bring good from everything. He will bring all things right in Jesus. The question is, what, will we, what part will we play along the way? Abner doesn't thwart God's plans, but he does cause an awful lot of pain and suffering for himself and for other people. And again, it's tempting to condemn Abner as a pantomime villain. If we were doing the mini-series, the HBO mini-series of Second Samuel, you know, I, I, I think of Abner as the principal antagonist, that he would be there kind of cackling with a big beard, oiled, oiled massive biceps. And he would be the baddie, the kind of pantomime villain. And it's tempting to paint Abner in that way as a kind of contrast to David's wonderful hero. You'll sometimes hear that in churches. People treat David as if he's the be-all and end-all, the bee's knees, the large fromage. And Abner's then the baddie. And I want to suggest that's a massive mistake. See, even in the midst of all the good David did, we notice two or three times we're told about his wives and his kids. I wonder if you noticed that while we were reading it. I thought that's a bit of an odd thing to do. It's a bit of an odd digression. That's not pacing the miniseries very well, is it? We peak with massive battle and civil war starts. And then we go, by the way, David had six wives. And he had a different son by each one of them. First thing that would be on the editing room floor. Why are they there? I want to suggest they're there because they show that even in the midst of his strength, David was still a sinful man. What David is doing when he marries all of these women, you see, we're told, not just told the women's names, we're told who their fathers were. What he's doing is cementing his power. 
He both, he both has an eye for the ladies, and to be honest, he's a womanizer, and is uh, abusive. But he also has an eye for how to cement political power, so he marries the daughters of rival kings. Well, that's what that list was about. David married X, the daughter of Y. This is why he asked for Michal back, because she's the daughter of Saul. So he's eventually looking and thinking, ah, I can unite the kingdoms, Henry VII, by marrying the daughter of my enemy. Even in the midst of the good David does, he disregards God's will to satisfy his own desire and greater power. Why do I say that? Well, God had envisaged that one day Israel would have kings. And he'd given instructions about how the kings should behave. And this was one of the explicit instructions God gave. The king must not take many wives, or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. Why? You see, the temptation for powerful men is to abuse women. God had said powerful men in Israel are not to abuse women. That's not the way my kingdom should function. We think back to, think of Ephesians 5, verse 21. Submit to one another. Wives to husbands and husbands to wives. God's kingdom doesn't function with one gender abusing the other. That's the way of the world. David succumbs to it. But he also shouldn't rely upon making alliances with many, many kings through many, many women to get power. David ignores this. It's politically and culturally unremarkable. It's what everybody did. What everybody did by the standards of his day. It's also totally against what God said he should behave, how God said he should behave. Yeah, David's disregard for God's command doesn't have any impact right now. And that's often the way of it. You know, very often we don't feel the consequences of ignoring what God says straight away. Sometimes it even achieves what we want it to do. You know, to use a crude example, if you nick something from a shop, for a little while at least, you've got something extra. David profits by his decision to disregard God's law. But if you read the story on and then follow it into 1 Kings, what you'll notice is that David's family is destroyed by rivalry between the sons in this list. Spoiler alert. Absalom and Abner, not Absalom and Abner, Absalom and Amnon and various others of the list will end up killing each other. Why? Because of the way they treat women. See, the two things David, David chooses to disregard God's law on destroy his family, eventually. They end up breaking up his kingdom. If you read Sol- the story of Solomon in 1 Kings, Solomon is a great king, and what happens is he makes alliances with kings around him, and he does so by marrying into their families, and in the end, this ends up undermining everything he tries to do. David didn't feel the consequences of his decision right now, But they came. He sowed the wind, his family reaped the whirlwind. Culturally unremarkable, but it broke David's family and broke his kingdom. You see, God knew what he was talking about. When God said the king should not take many wives, he knew that this was how to protect women, 
And that when you do take many wives, women end up getting abused. And actually the story of the fall of David's kingdom later is the story of the abuse of one of his daughters by one of his sons. It destroys families. It breaks up kingdoms. It undermines their faithfulness to God. God knew what he was talking about. But David was blinded by the culture he lives in the advantage of he, obtain, he obtains. See, my friends, this is a stark lesson for all of us. I'm sorry if it sounds a bit bleak. I could play Blackout again for you if you want to laugh. It's a bit bleak. But that's because it's not, it's not very nice. But human beings aren't very nice. It doesn't matter how, much, how good we are, whether we're the greatest king or boss or mum or granddad or preacher or politician or whatever, there comes a point when all of us will sin and we probably don't even notice it. How many good and faithful and kind and loving men and women own slaves? How many good Christian people own slaves? I'm not here to sit in judgment upon them. I'm here to use their example to illustrate that actually they didn't notice. We all sin. We all sin. Some of us sin with a high hand like Abner. Some of us sin unconsciously. It's just what it is to be human. So blinded by our culture, our past or our desire that we don't even notice. But however we do it, we all sin and the consequences are devastating. Sometimes they hit us immediately in the breakup of relationships or families or friendships or any other way. Sometimes they hit us later in the damage we sow for our families and our futures. Ultimately all our sin cuts us off from God and from each other. That's what it does. See the two sides of David's life here that I've shown reflect both our need for Christ but also the hope we have in Christ. We fail and fall. None of us obey God perfectly. Even David, the David, the greatest king in Israel's history, the one whom they praised Jesus when they shouted, Son of David, have mercy on me. Even he could not obey God perfectly. But Jesus did. We sin, he did not. We fail, he succeeded. We are not righteous, he is righteous. We are, if you like, endlessly in debt. He is endlessly in credit. And when he died and rose again, he offered us a trade. This is the gospel, friends. That we hurt each other and cut ourselves off from God. And Jesus Christ has come to offer to repay the, the debt we owe. To rebuild the bridge we broke. In the words of St. Paul, Jesus became sin, who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He knew no sin, we knew sin. He became sin, so we could become righteous. I did many cases as a lawyer. Uh, I worked in a civil court, so I did mainly debt cases in one form or another. I never once had judgment given and then the judge come down and pay the debt. And yet that is what the scripture says Jesus did. It is as if judgment was given and the judge said, you have broken the contract I made with you and you have broken it with the contract you made with each other. But I will pay the debt you owe because I am endlessly in credit. 
uh, prophet Isaiah put it like this I'll make this from Nicky Gumbel so I'm just going to credit him now or we like sheep have gone astray we've turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of all or we like sheep have gone astray in a sense, the, word, the deeds we do sow consequences for other people and for ourselves that cut us off from them and cut us off from God. We've turned each one to his own way. But God has laid the iniquity on him. And all the brokenness moves from us to him. And now we're free. He offers each one of us what Luther called a beautiful exchange. How then should we respond? Well, if you don't know Jesus yet, if you know that you've done wrong and you want to start a new life with God and with others, and you want the promise of eternal life, then God's word for you this morning is repent and be baptised. That is what God speaks to you. I don't even need to know your circumstances. If you don't yet know Christ, God's word to you is repent and be baptised. And you will receive the Holy Spirit. You will receive a new life, a new start. The punishment that brought us peace will be placed on him. If you are a Christian, then God's word to you is to follow him. Find out what he wants. Read the Bible. Talk to other Christians. Pray. Ask the Holy Spirit to lead you. Come on to a life group. And then resolve to follow him. There's an interesting book I have called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. It's really interesting because the author, who is somebody who spent his whole life interpreting the Bible, and particularly St. Paul, says at the beginning, do you know the problem is not that we need someone to interpret the Bible to us. I thought to himself, Gordon, that's an interesting point, but you're doing me out of a job. And what about yourself? He says, no, the problem with St. Paul is not that it's too difficult to understand what he's saying. The problem with St. Paul is it's too easy and too hard to do it. He says, don't steal. Don't lie, don't cheat, don't envy. Love your enemies as yourself. You think, oh, it's really difficult to know what he means, but it's not difficult at all. If you're married, love your wives and your husbands. Forgive. Don't cheat. It's not understanding these things that's difficult, it's doing them. Resolve to follow. My friends, when God finds men and women who will seek out what he wants and be willing to do it, great things happen. He made David with all his faults into the greatest king in Israel's history because he desired God's glory above his own and wanted to follow him. God wants you to become David in your family, in your workplace, in your community centre, in your friendships. Even perhaps for some of us in wider society. Follow Jesus by finding out what God wants and then doing it. Even when you fall, know that Jesus can restore you. Just take a minute to pray and then Helen's going to come lead us in some songs.